Excuse me. Who are you? Rubius Hagrid, keeper of keys and grounds at Hogwarts. Of course, you'll know all about Hogwarts. Sorry, no. No? Blimey, Harry, didn't you ever wonder where your mum and dad learned it all? Learned what? You're a wizard, Harry. I'm a what? Hey there, welcome wizard. to the Lord to Death podcast. My name's Brett, wizard. and today I want to talk about something that might be slightly controversial in today's climate. Hogwarts School of Witchcraft and Wizardry. More specifically, I want to talk about the history of Hogwarts as we know it from the books and the movies. I don't feel like I should have to say this, but I want to preface by saying that I do not agree with the views of She Who Must Not Be Named and her views against basic human rights. I simply grew up on Harry Potter as an IP, and it remains a core part of how I got into fantasy as a genre and remains a core part of who I am. I think it's very important to separate the art from the artist and try to enjoy things for what they are, not for who created them. So with that preamble out of the way, let's just get on with it. Having recently played Hogwarts Legacy, I knew that I had to go over the history of Hogwarts. There have been plenty of games in the past that allowed you to roam the castle and the grounds to an extent, and of course there are the books and movies that give us a limited glance into what it looked like, but there was something special about an open world game that not only allowed you to explore the castle and grounds at Hogwarts, but Hogsmeade and the surrounding hamlets. It gives us a much better view of the school and what it would have been like to be a student there. That and the field notes within the school and the surrounding area gave us a ton of little plot points that helped flesh out Hogwarts history and the people who helped create it. So we might as well go all the way back to when it was founded. So, Hogwarts School of Witchcraft and Wizardry was founded in the year 993 by Godric Gryffindor, Helga Hufflepuff, Rowena Ravenclaw, and Salazar Slytherin in the Scottish Highlands. The exact location is unknown as it was rendered unplottable. So that means that there was a ward cast over the school to make sure that it would never be found by muggles or non-magic folks. It still exists though as a physical place and muggles could technically find the location, However, what they would see is an old castle ruin with signs all around the premises saying danger, do not enter, unsafe, and stuff to that degree. Places like Azkaban or the House of Black were also unplottable, and interestingly enough, the Room of Requirement within Hogwarts was also unplottable, making it the only unplottable location within an unplottable location, aside from the Chamber of Secrets, which wasn't necessarily warded, but just carefully omitted from maps to keep it a secret. So I guess it's unplottableception? Unplotception? I don't know. I'm trying to force that joke way too hard. On top of being unplottable, Hogwarts had a number of other enchantments and charms cast on it as well. There were a number of protective enchantments cast around the school to keep these students safe, although these specifics aren't mentioned as to what exactly they do or how many are floating around. There's also an anti-apparition charm, meaning that no one could apparate, meaning to magically teleport oneself, onto or out of the school grounds. This could, however, be temporarily lifted by the headmaster so that the students could take the apparitions class. This class was optional and could be taken when a student reaches the age of 17 or would reach the age of 17 within that school year, so typically they're sixth. However, if you had a late birthday like Harry Potter or Draco Malfoy, then you would have to wait until the following school year to be able to take the class. But we'll get into classes and all that stuff later. So Hogwarts was in the Scottish Highlands which means that the school was service to any magical student residing in Great Britain and Ireland. That being said, it wasn't uncommon for a student to transfer from another school if need be, like Natsai Onai who transferred from Wagadu in Uganda when her mother began teaching at Hogwarts. But aside from transfers, British and Irish witches and wizards were enrolled at birth via the Quill of Acceptance and the Book of Admittance. The magical quill and book were created by the founders and placed inside a locked portion of the Headmaster's Tower. 
These items are something of a mystery to most, with few knowing how they worked seeing as the inkwell and quill were empty of ink, and the quill itself was made of an augury feather which would normally repel ink. Albus Dumbledore claimed to have known how it worked, but said that divulging such information would cause needless, tedious explanations to wizarding parents who would be furious that their child wasn't accepted. The quill would detect signs of magical children at birth and write their names in the book, and the names written were never wrong. No child was ever admitted into first year without having their name written in the book. However, there were cases that students transferred in from other schools or in later years were enrolled, as we see in Hogwarts Legacy, that there were a handful of special cases that were enrolled in their fifth year and didn't actually go to school from their first to fourth. But that's an exception, not necessarily part of the rule. A child's acceptance was confirmed by Owlpost at the age of 11 if the child had at least one magical parent. If they were muggle-born, or they were a special case like Harry Potter who had no knowledge of the magical world but his parents were magical and he was living with muggles, then an emissary would be sent from the school, in Harry's case it was Rubius Hagrid, to gently inform them about the magical world and hand-deliver their letter of acceptance. Now I guess Harry Potter kind of got both of these worlds where there was the owl post, um, and then later Hagrid came in and hand-delivered him a letter, but Harry is just an exceptional case in all areas. Back to the school, the school crest features the symbol of each house. The Lion of Gryffindor, the Serpent of Slytherin, the Badger of Hufflepuff, and the Eagle of Ravenclaw. You thought I was going to say the Raven of Ravenclaw, didn't you? Well, joke's on you because that would just be too obvious and it would make any amount of sense. In the middle of the mascots is a black letter H and below it a scroll with the school motto in Latin. The motto was Draco Dormians Nunquam Titalandis. And I know that I am butchering that pronunciation, but in English it means never tickle a sleeping dragon. Now this might seem a little bit out of left field because while it is fantastic advice to anyone, it's a little odd that that would be a school motto. I think it's a magical play on the popular phrase, let sleeping dogs lie, and it's sort of a cautionary tale for students to remember that while something is dormant, it is not a threat, and waking it up could cause more trouble than it's worth. Basically, stay in your lane and you won't get yourself and others hurt. You could also look at the Latin and surmise that each word relates to one of the founders, which is an alright theory, but it doesn't have any canonical roots, and nothing has really been divulged that would lead us to believe that it is anything other than pure speculation. There was also a school song, which was nonsensical in its own right. It seemed to poke fun at the students being empty-headed, full of dead flies and bits of fluff, and some of the headmasters didn't like it to be sung. There was no definitive rhythm to the song either, so it could be sung however anyone wanted to. It was kind of an oddity and it was more of a joke than anything else. But back to the founders, they cooperated and built the school in unity for a period of time. Shortly after its founding, however, Salazar Slytherin had a falling out with the other founders over blood purity. He believed that only pure blood witches and wizards should be able to attend Hogwarts, while the others believed that any magical child, regardless of the circumstance of their birth, should be able to enroll. It was this falling out that caused Salazar Slytherin to leave the school, but not before creating the Chamber of Secrets foretelling that only his heir would be able to open it when they arrived at the school, and they would unleash a terrible basilisk living inside to purge the school of all muggle-born students. So with all we know about Salazar so far, we see that the founders all brought an aspect of their personality to their houses, and that would partially determine which the sorting hat would send you to. But we'll get back to the sorting hat in a moment. Salazar of House Slytherin was wrought with sly and cunning. Godric of Gryffindor embodied bravery and chivalry. Rowena of Ravenclaw had intelligence and wit, and Helga of Hufflepuff had loyalty and fair play. Many of these personality traits overlap with each other, meaning that there's no quote-unquote right house for someone to be sorted into. 
Personal preference played a large part in the final decision on what house a student would be sorted into. The sorting hat was brought out at the opening banquet each year to determine which house each first year would be sorted into. The opening banquet is exactly what it sounds like. It is a massive feast in the Grand Hall after all the first years get sorted and then they kind of go over the school rules for each year. But the sorting hat was a battered old hat whose rips and tears and folds within the hat kind of formed eyes and a mouth. It was kind of visually upsetting, but the hat would speak to the students whose head it was on. It used legitimacy to read one's thoughts in order to make a decision. Because it was reading a student's thoughts, personal preference was taken into account. We see this with Harry Potter not being sorted into Slytherin and being placed in Gryffindor instead. He has the qualities of a Slytherin and a Gryffindor student, and ultimately the sorting hat would have put him into Slytherin if he weren't praying and praying and praying that he wasn't put into Slytherin. But the overlap in house qualities, as mentioned before, means that Harry would have been a great fit for any house, really, and a lot of students would fit anywhere they want it to be. Harry just saw how the Malfoys acted and didn't want to be sorted into the same house with the likes of Draco, who was in Slytherin. And speaking of Slytherin, it was Salazar who enchanted the sorting hat in the first place, being a particularly gifted legilimens. And if it wasn't entirely obvious, legilimency was the ability to read one's thoughts, and being particularly gifted in legilimency made you a legilimens. That word is so hard to say. So despite running the school together in unison for a number of years, none of the founders took the title of headmaster until they eventually passed away and the school was entrusted to the first headmaster in the 11th century. Unfortunately, I couldn't find any information about who this individual was, and it seems to be quite the mystery surrounding who they were and why they were entrusted as headmaster, but let's talk about what the position entailed. So the headmaster, or headmistress, was the one in charge at Hogwarts. They would have the final say on day-to-day -day functions at the school, and had the power to override any decision made by any other faculty member. They were also in control of the protective spells, which we went over briefly when we talked about apparition, which means that they could bring down the school's defenses and put them up as needed. At their side was the deputy headmaster or headmistress, who would assist the headmaster in their duties. In the event that the headmaster would take a leave of office due to death or dismissal, the deputy would take over until the board of governors elected a new one. And if anyone is interested in who all of the headmasters were, there was the first headmaster of Hogwarts in the early 11th century, who, again, we don't know anything about. There was Philidia Spohr sometime before 1408, Edessa Sekindenberg sometime before 1503, Fitherly Undercliff, sometime before 1531, Vindictus Viridian, amazing name, sometime before 1703, Amrose Swat, sometime before 1704, Dillis Derwent, from 1741 to 1768, there was an unidentified professor who was promoted to headmaster in the 1790s, Euphraxia Mole in 1876, Phineas Nigellus Black, sometime in the late 19th century before 1926, Newton Scamander, sometime in the 20th century, Armando Dippet, sometime in the early 20th century to about 1956, Albus Dumbledore in 1956 to 1997, although he was suspended in 1993, later reinstated, assumed to have been sacked in 1996 after escaping a ministry attempt to arrest him, and then reinstated that year. That is so confusing. In 1993, when he was suspended, Minerva McGonagall acted as headmaster for a time. During the event in 1996, Dolores Umbridge was the headmistress. Although interesting to note, although she was proclaimed headmistress, she was not acknowledged as such by the headmaster's office, which shut her out for the remainder of the year. In addition, her portrait doesn't hang in the headmaster's office along with all of the previous headmasters. And then Minerva McGonagall, again, in 1997, after the death of Albus Dumbledore. And then later in 1997, it was Severus Snape for a year. 
And then after that, in 1998, it was Minerva McGonagall again until sometime between 2011 and 2017. It's not really known. As far as we know, she is still the headmistress. Below the headmaster, there was an abundance of very talented witches and wizards that made up the staff of teachers, just like any other school that you or I might know about. And as a student, you would be awarded a grade by your teachers upon completion of a class that determined if you passed or failed. Also similar to our modern school systems, there was a list of compulsory and elective classes that a student could tailor to what they wanted to do after their time with Hogwarts. And similarly, again, to help with that, some teachers would act as counselors to help determine a student's path and advise which classes they should take in order to be whatever they want to be in their life after Hogwarts. So as far as we know, the core classes typically included astronomy, charms, defense against the dark arts, flying, herbology, history of magic, muggle studies, potions, and transfiguration. So you would have to take these courses for the first two years. And then in the third year, you could start adding electives such as arithmancy, care of magical creatures, divination, muggle studies, which was actually a core class in the 1997 to 1998 school year, and the study of ancient runes. And then in their fifth year, students would be allowed to take the OWLs, or Ordinary Wizarding Levels, which determined whether you could take certain classes in your sixth year, such as Advanced Arithmacy Studies, Alchemy, Ancient Studies, and Apparition. If a student achieved the Outstanding or Exceeds Expectations grade, then they could take the NEWTs, or Nastily Exhausting Wizarding Tests, to be able to take even more advanced classes in their seventh year, which would come from the same list as the prior, again, depending on what they wanted to do after their time at Hogwarts. The unfortunate thing about these electives in the later years is that they were based on demand, which means that if you were dying to take alchemy, but for some reason it was only you and maybe a couple other students who wanted to take the class, it wouldn't be run and you wouldn't be able to take alchemy. So for all of these classes, regardless if they were compulsory or elective, all students would have to take an exam at the end of the school year to determine whether they passed or failed said class. The exam would typically be one culminating act that showed one's competence within the subject. For example, in 1992, during Harry Potter's first year, the students in Professor Flitwick's Charms class had to attribute an animation to an otherwise inanimate object. These students had to make a pineapple dance across Flitwick's desk. Or, in the same year, Professor Snape had the potions class brew a forgetfulness potion. This is kind of a stab at the students for not remembering anything, and it was one of the cruel jokes that Snape kind of played on the students. But then there were more typical exams that we would have done, like in the 1995 year, Harry's fourth year, they had an exam to test their knowledge on the Goblin Rebellions for the History of Magic exam, which was a written exam. And on top of the core and elective classes, there were also extracurricular classes that one could take, such as Art, Ghoul Studies, Magical Theory, Muggle Art, Muggle Music, Music, and Xylomancy. And with extracurriculars came clubs for basically every class, like Charms Club and Dueling Clubs, and clubs for different kinds of animals like dragons, sphinxes, and hippogriffs. And there was even an orchestra and a frog choir that you could be a part of. I particularly find the frog choir quite fascinating because instead of using instruments or having any sort of baritone, it was just everyone holding a massive frog and the frog would just like occasionally belch and make that kind of baritone sound. It was pretty sweet. We see this with the song Bubble Bubble Toil and Trouble in one of the movies. It's, uh, it, it, it's pretty sweet. And who doesn't want, like, a 20-pound frog? That seems so sick. And then, of course, students could also engage in Quidditch, the wizarding sport played on flying broomsticks. The sport was very popular among witches and wizards, so of course they had to include it, just like any school would include a football team, maybe a soccer team, something like that. Each house had their own Quidditch team, and the team consisted of seven members. 
So while being on the team was very exclusive, whenever there was a game on, every student would basically go down to the Quidditch pitch and watch the game. But there is a whole wide weird history with Quidditch, and it's way too much to go over in its entirety, but Quidditch was a very integral part of Hogwarts as it increased morale and gave students something to do outside of their schoolwork. So outside of their classes and extracurriculars, students were allowed to go home for a certain holiday such as Christmas or Easter. Although students could choose to instead stay at the school and would be treated to a holiday feast to share with their students and other faculty who were still there. Gilderoy Lockhart, the Defense Against the Dark Arts teacher in the 1992-1993 school year, organized a celebration for Valentine's Day, in line with his weird, creepy character. For reasons that should be relatively obvious, the tradition was not continued when he left the following year. Students could also visit Hogsmeade, a local village outside of Hogwarts that students third year and above were allowed to visit on holidays or weekends. There were shops aplenty such as Zonko's Joke Shop or Gladrag's Wizardware, and a couple pubs as well where the students could go grab a butterbeer and a bite to eat. Just outside of Hogsmeade, there was also Hogsmeade Station, where the students would arrive and leave by train at the beginning and end of the school year on their journey to or from Platform 9 and 3 quarters. But during the weekday and during class, students had homework just like we do, and there were plenty of areas around the school where students could do their schoolwork outside of the classroom. There was a study hall near the library, the library itself, there was a study area on the fourth floor, and the common rooms all typically had an area where you could hunker down with a book as well. Students also had some accessories that could help them out with their studies as well, such as a homework planner. It was a magical journal that let a student keep track of their assignments and verbally reminded them to not put off their schoolwork every time they opened it saying things like, do it today or you'll pay, and don't leave it till later, you big second raider. These were not exactly very popular among students as it, you know, promoted schoolwork and not shenanigans, but they were an option for people who maybe had trouble getting their schoolwork done. And while we're on the topic of students, and because I don't really have another area to throw this in, there was a school uniform. During the school day, students were required to wear a uniform that consisted of a black robe and a black pointed hat for day wear. In the movies, we often see this fashioned with black dress pants and shoes with a white dress shirt and tie underneath a vest or a sweater. The robes often had the student's house insignia on the left chest, and the inside material was the main color of the house. Red for Gryffindor, green for Slytherin, yellow for Hufflepuff, and blue for Ravenclaw. But outside of the school day, the students could wear whatever they wanted. Alright, so enough about the students, let's get back into some of the history. So about 300 years after the school was founded in 1294, the Triwizard Tournament was established. It was a magical tournament between the three largest wizarding schools of Europe, Hogwarts of Scotland, Durmstrang, which was somewhere in the far north of Europe, presumably in Russia from their accents in the movies, who accepted students as far down as Bulgaria, and the Bobatons of the French Pyrenees, who accepted students as far as Spain, Portugal, and the Netherlands, to name a few. The tournament had one representative, or champion, from each school who would compete in a number of extremely hazardous tasks for a chance to win the Triwizard Cup and a monetary prize. It ran for several hundred years until it was discontinued in 1792 because of the high death toll. It turns out that killing your students is typically frowned upon, even amongst wizards. In 1994, however, the tournament was revived with more restrictions in place to attempt to stop potential deaths. One of the restrictions is that the student had to be over 17, which, of course, we know that Harry Potter circumvented in his fourth year, and unfortunately, the student Cedric Diggory still perished during the tournament, albeit from non-tournament-related shenanigans involving a Dark Lord, and the tournament had not been held since. Probably for the best. Killing kids is bad, okay? So nothing really groundbreaking happened during this period between when the Triwizard Tournament was created up until the 1700s, 
And that was when they decided that the plumbing at Hogwarts needed to be updated, and they decided to build an elaborate plumbing system that included putting bathrooms in the school. Now, what did they do before that point? I'm not really sure, and I don't really want to find out, but I'm sure it's not hard to take a squat and vanish a poo from the floor as a wizard. Anyways, there was a girl's lavatory that was to be installed where the secret entrance to the Chamber of Secrets was. One of Salazar Slytherin's ancestors, Corvinus Gaunt, amazing name by the way, who was a student at the time, knew where the entrance was and how to open it. At that time, it consisted of a concealed trapdoor and a series of magical tunnels instead of the giant sewage pipe that we see in the movies. Corvinus was responsible for secretly protecting the entrance and concealed it behind the plumbing in the sinks, requiring it to be opened by Parseltongue, and then leading down a giant sewage pipe that led down into the Chamber of Secrets, as we see in the second movie. And how could we talk about all of this history without talking about Hogwarts resident poltergeist, Peeves? Peeves' origins are relatively mysterious, and he kind of came with the school. He wasn't someone who died on the grounds and became a ghost like Moaning Myrtle, he was just kind of there. It's thought that Peeves is the manifestation of the student's mischief, and that having so many young people around caused a poltergeist to appear. Being such, Peeves was a trickster. Much like Fred and George Weasley, he liked to cause havoc and was the cause of several stress-induced leaves by staff, and had a habit of specifically picking on caretakers. In 1876, a caretaker by the name of Rancorous Carp devised an elaborate trap in an effort to remove Peeves from Hogwarts. The trap consisted of several weapons such as cutlasses, crossbows, a blunderbuss, and even a small cannon, which were placed under a large bell jar enchanted with a myriad of containment charms. The intent was to keep Peeves at gunpoint to prevent him from escaping. Now, it did work initially, and the Geist was trapped, but much to the disappointment of Carp, he managed to break free and assaulted the school with the weapons that were meant to keep him under control. Peeves literally held the entire school hostage for three days before the headmistress, Euphraxia Mole, came to an agreement with Peeves. He was allowed to swim in the boys' toilet once a week, he was able to take stale bread and throw it at people, and he had a custom hat made for him in exchange for his surrender. Carp, fearing that Peeves would continue to haunt him and seek retribution for attempting to take the Geist captive, resigned from his post as caretaker shortly after the incident. Outside of the caretakers and the staff, Peeves would just kind of float around, especially by the boys' washrooms, and just harass students. He would sing songs and riddles at them and just annoy the absolute hell out of people. But, despite all of his mischief, Peeves took part in defending the castle in 1998 during the Battle of Hogwarts, where the Dark Lord Voldemort infiltrated the grounds with his gang of Death Eaters in a violent campaign to rid the world of those who were not pure of blood. During the battle, Peeves would pick up and throw objects at the Death Eaters and distract them while the wizards could take care of them. After the battle, Peeves flew amongst the survivors and sang songs of victory before returning to his mischievous ways. Along with Peeves, there were plenty of other ghosts floating around Hogwarts, Although they were ghosts of actual people, whereas, aforementioned, Peeves was seemingly created out of thin air. Each house had its own ghost, in fact. Gryffindor had Nearly Headless Nick, Hufflepuff the Fat Friar, Ravenclaw the Grey Lady, and Slytherin the Bloody Baron. These ghosts have enough story around them to do a whole episode on, so I won't go too much into detail other than that most of the ghosts were friendly towards student and staff, and quite helpful. I think the other most notable ghost was kind of mentioned before, Moaning Myrtle, who was a student at Hogwarts who, when she died, returned to the school in perpetuity with the goal of haunting her arch-rival, Olive Hornby, although she didn't do much other than sob and sulk around the girl's lavatory where the entrance to the Chamber of Secrets was hidden. And if she hadn't been there, they might not have ever found it. Among all this, you have the events of Hogwarts Legacy in the late 1800s, which has caused a little bit of a spark of debate on whether it's actual canon in the universe. 
Whether it's canon or not, nothing much of consequence happened in the game that we really know of. There was a new form of ancient magic that was introduced that was never brought up after that. And there was another concealed room revealed under Hogwarts, the map room, and there was a battle underneath Hogwarts between the wizarding staff, some students, against goblins. So I feel like the events of Hogwarts Legacy, along with the events of Harry Potter, which took place in the 1990s, that covered the Second Wizarding Wars and the Battle of Hogwarts against Voldemort and his cronies, as we kind of mentioned before, I think really deserve their own episodes. And I feel like it would be a little bit of a waste going over them here, as this is more about Hogwarts and less about an individual. And that honestly about covers everything from its conception to day-to-day -day life at Hogwarts. The school, in modern times and up to this day, as we kind of mentioned before, is currently under the care of Minerva McGonagall, as far as we know. And outside of potential controversies, I would love to hear what you think. Do you think that Hogwarts would have been an interesting place to be a student at, and how do you think it would differ from other schools like those in Europe or the US? You can find us online at Lord to Death on your favorite social media or podcast websites. Until then, make sure that you love everyone regardless of their story, unless they're a bigot. Remember to throw popcorn at your local turf, and I'll talk to you off next time. See ya.